five pairs of New York City headquarters. No, we're not. I'm still in Brooklyn. I don't know what I'm saying, <laughs> but I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Trabal. And this is the Vibe Pair Podcast, Friday edition. Yeah, you can you're say whatever you want on Fridays. It, man. Yeah, Saturday. you know, I can still be confused. <laughs> You'd be like, why am I still here? It's Friday, and I'm still at home, and I don't understand why. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. I yeah. feel ya. It's like that uh, Talking Head song, right? How did I? I can't remember. Now I'm going to try and quote lyrics to get them. <laughs> no. like, so you're going to get uh, called out. You're going to get called out. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. Never mind. Uh, so, friends. Hello. You know, I think we got we got a good conversation for, uh, you know, this Friday. But before then, any Prestige TV, since this is also a Prestige TV uh, podcast. Ooh. You know, Joanna, yes. Joanna's watching Yellow Jackets. I am. I am. By, by the time you hear this, the show will have ended, right? Yeah, know, I'm super everything. pumped. I'm super pumped. Zach, what about you? Any Prestige TV? Uh, yeah, Caitlin and I have been watching uh, The Wheel of Time, which is uh, an adaptation of Robert Jordan's like comically long series of fantasy novels. But we're enjoying it. We're like most of the way through the first season. And then we've been, I think the only thing we're watching that's like actively coming out as you all are listening to this is uh, The Book of Boba Fett. Um, mm-hmm. Which, oh, I haven't seen, I haven't started it yet. <sighs> I'm not I'm not sold. It's not as good as The Mandalorian, right? It's not. I mean, we've just seen the first two episodes that as we're recording this, the third episode just came out, so we haven't actually seen it yet because again, children are complicating factors and all this. But um I I, I don't know this is not gonna be a big Star Wars conversation, I don't think, because my god, <laughs> um this cup podcast would be long and, and maybe unlistenable. Gee, where but are you? but my feeling is that like i found the the like especially the last movie and the this most recent trilogy to be basically unwatchable but Mm -hmm. i don't mind sort of all this other weird ancillary star wars stuff because i enjoy the trappings of star wars a lot and so Mm -hmm. the ways in which it's like here are star warsy things but we're not really doing like classic star warsy stuff is kind of cool with me I, i don't mind it i think it helps kind of make you know the 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 Star Wars universe feel a little more lived in that there are like these smaller stories and I've in, in my own ways enjoyed some of them, but it is a little weird. It definitely does not conform to a lot of what my expectations for what like a Star Wars show would be, and that it is very it's not very Star Warsy in a lot yeah. of ways. But I kind of am enjoying it. I don't know. It's 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 good enough for me to keep going with for now. Good enough. Is this also like a John Favreau? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Very similar to The Mandalorian. I mean, it's sort of a spinoff, I guess you could say, even mm-hmm. though The Mandalorian is a spinoff of Star Wars and Boba Fett's actually in the original movies. But like there, it's very like, you know, it's kind of like a, yeah, it's just a smaller stakes show, at least at this point. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. there will be a big connection, but like The Mandalorian at least had this element of like, okay, Baby Yoda. connected to this. Yeah. They had Baby Yoda. <laughs> yes. yes. And it had this element of like, bigger galactic intrigue and like at least so far we have not gotten there um, yeah. which is kind of cool with. it's like small and like there are some weird aliens and like you, you learn an alarming amount about the nature of night entertainment on Tatooine but like that's cool interesting <laughs> interesting cool I, I I would say there's one other show that I'm watching that is well two but only one that's like just the best thing in the world and that's the righteous gemstones Oh, you know, I thought about that. That's Danny McBride, right? It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, but he's like the the third or fourth funniest person on the show. Okay, like it's it's just so good, and I really do believe, as I was telling Joanna earlier, at least fifty percent of the show has to be improv, and it's (laughs) just so funny. Like the dialogue is just hilarious. And then I don't know if you guys have seen Reservation Dogs. No. 
but it's really it's pretty it's i've watched it like off and on for the past few months but it's um the first ever indigenous comedy yeah um and it's it's a comedy well it's a comedy in the way atlanta is a comedy dramedy yes but it's very very good um Mm -hmm. and very well done so i would recommend those but uh, aside from that, let's talk about actually our Friday, uh, our Friday topic, which is something that I've noticed recently. I think, you know, Zach, you've noticed as well, Joanna too, but I, I definitely, I feel like I really noticed it when I was most recently in Portland, Maine. Um, and that is that I feel like the only people that give a shit about local distilleries are the local bars and restaurants that support them. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is it feels like, as Zach put eloquently in our Slack when we were, when we were talking about this topic, are local craft distilleries doomed to always be local? Mm-hmm. Like, is there truly any opportunity to ever become a national brand? And, or are we seeing kind of what has already happened to beer happen much faster for distilleries, right? So like you basically, you had like Hudson baby bourbon that became a national right. brand and got purchased and like you've seen a few others like um High West, right, that was purchased by Constellation. But then like Where's a lot High of, West from? Uh Utah. Yeah, Park okay. City, I think, right? Park City, yeah. Uh and and really and but again, built the brand because it was in Park City and all these people were flying into Park City to ski and they were drinking it while they were skiing, they were flying back to wherever they live, right? And so the, it sort of it ha- it was in this destination that helped make it national. Yeah. But like the local distillery in Philly, like, is it ever going to be national and is just doomed to kind of be like, so the, what made me think about this is, you know, I was at the hotel bar and the bartender was like, oh, like, I got to make your, I got to make your cocktail in Portland. with, yeah, with, mm-hmm. with the local gin. And I was like, okay, man. So first <laughs> of all, it was like, you know, four or $5 more than if I had just gotten Tanqueray or Hendrix. Sure. And it was fine. Like it was fine. And then I saw it everywhere in Portland specifically, and it was just fine, but everyone wanted to recommend it because it was the Portland gin, you know? And then I happened to walk by the distillery and like, nobody was there. Whereas like all the craft breweries in Portland were really crowded. Like, cause I don't think anyone really goes, does like craft distillery tourism. You know, like you don't. Do you spend the afternoon at a distillery? I don't know. So, anyways, <laughs> in, in so, Louisville, you do, right? Well, yeah, but those are real distilleries. Okay, that's, yeah, I, yeah, don't, yeah. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean, that. I didn't mean they were real. I, I just mean they're 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 big brands that people yeah. know and they chase bottles from. Well, you know? and they're also like set up to have like a, the, the tour at you know pick your famous bourbon distillery is a whole event. There's it's yeah. an hours long tour. It's like analogous to going on a tour of you know Budweiser or something right. in some sense like they have a whole thing set up for that if you go to a craft brewery and say hey I'd like to take your tour they're gonna be like great there are the taps no, what do you want or or when you go to craft breweries you have to take the tour and they're like they just like walk you behind the bar into into the room and they're like yeah. this is where we ferment and then they like hand you hops to smell and like that's the tour <laughs> who wants another beer you know like that's usually the tour at the craft brewery so I mean you're totally right but like yeah, the, and also at these big distilleries, the thing that like they're really well known for is releases that are only there. Right. Yeah, that now people collect, right? Even like you know Heaven Hill, like you, there's certain versions of like Old Fitzgerald you can only get at the distillery. You know, obviously Buffalo Trace has lots of stuff you can only get yeah. at the distillery. And special days when they're releasing, you know, 
a, a special release of like I don't know some E.H. Taylor whatever that's hard for people to get or Blanton's. So I think that's it's just different. I don't know though. What do you what do you both think? Do you think that they that these are doomed to be just kind of local things? Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about this before our conversation, and I was like, well, I mean, I get the I get the allure of it, right? Like to be in Portland. And you're going to the bar and they're like, we can give you this local gin. You're like, that that seems appealing to me. Like, of course, I'm here. Why wouldn't I want to try the local spirit? Um, but why would I care about that spirit outside of Portland necessarily? So I, I think it makes sense for craft spirits to be local. And I kind of don't get, I don't get it outside of mm-hmm. its own state, maybe even, um, or how, how it could make that jump or why it would. Yeah, I think there's a lot of complicating factors here. I mean, given what Adam's already revealed about what I put in our Slack channel, like I, I think this this general conceit is is very spot on. That that with few exceptions, and and Adam's named a couple, and I have a few others in mind. Oh, I want to hear them. It, oh, we'll get there. Um, that have <laughs> that have. It, it is really hard for for small distilleries to escape a couple of challenges. I mean, one of them is that in a way that just is not even true for craft breweries. It's harder and harder to get your product out of the state legally um, mm. when you're when you're mm. a distilled spirit. So working with a very small number of licensed and bonded um, spirits distributors in other parts of the country can be really tricky. You have to figure out a hook. And again, you think about a lot of the ways that these craft distilleries were launched. People, you know, when craft distilling laws were, were liberalized in the U.S. Um, in the last couple of decades – in most parts of the U.S., there was a rush to be like, hey, we recognize that there's an opportunity here to, to fit in and among amongst a burgeoning craft movement, not just in beverage alcohol, but in many, many things. And we can make vodka, gin, whiskey, et cetera, in, in any corner of the country. And a lot of places really put their, you know, put a lot of their focus and their attention on capturing some of that home market. And I think some you know, distilleries have been really successful doing exactly that. They haven't necessarily looked to go beyond. And the ones that have succeeded in going beyond have almost without fail done so the way you described, Adam, by by yeah. signing on either by being completely and wholly purchased by a much larger entity or at at a minimum, you know, selling some significant stake of their you know, of their interest to a big company mm-hmm. that just has the wherewithal to not just inject capital to grow production but the more important more difficult thing for a lot of these um, distilleries like get their product in front of people not just around the country but in some cases around the world and you know we talked we've talked a lot about aviation gin on this podcast in in other elements you know talking about um you know it has a a, this model of a celebrity backed spirit that that has some real cachet because ryan reynolds seems to be really involved but ryan reynolds didn't launch aviation. He didn't invent it. It was a Portland, Oregon company that he got interested in because he tried it and really liked it. And they, and, but their, their whole way of getting outside of the Pacific Northwest was like, holy shit, here's a movie star who wants to put money in and wants to, you know, has connections, can get this into distribution channels around the country. And now you can get aviation gin anywhere. Well, also they were early, right? They were another one of these Hudson baby. Cause I think before they got Ryan Reynolds involved, I think Davos brands had already purchased them. Which is who like, I think that's right, yes. ultimately bought, right? And so, like, mm-hmm. that's that's the thing. The other thing is, I think it happened so much faster for spirits than it did for beer. Like for beer, for a very long time, there were continual acquisitions, right? Where people kept thinking, okay, like maybe it could be, I could be the local brewery that is also bought by 
ABI or, yeah. you know, Kieran or whoever else was making purchases. I feel like in spirits, it's just not happening as much anymore on this really tiny local level. Like you have to have, as you're saying, if there's some other way that you, co- you totally get national, that's not just that we make a really good local product. Look, who knows? Maybe this bill had just passed in California that's going to allow direct to consumer spirit sales from distilleries could, you know, create a flood where other states make that legal too. And then, you know, we'll, we will have what you're talking about, but I just don't see that happening anytime soon because the three tier system and the, those lobbies are so powerful. I want to make a more controversial statement here too. And I think it's actually one that, that maybe you've made on this podcast before too, Adam. Yeah. The other big problem is like most of these spirits are pretty unremarkable. They're like they're good, fine. Right? Yeah. But, but to, to convince, I mean, I think the same is frankly, or unremarkable is maybe the wrong way to put it, but they don't stand in any meaningful way, head and shoulders above other local craft spirits in other parts of the country. So yeah. the craft gin you had in Portland, Maine might be quite fine, but it might be analogous to the craft gins that I could buy here in Seattle that someone could buy in, you know, Chicago or Austin or, you know, Phoenix or wherever, right? And like, if you are not, if you're not in Portland, Maine, and you don't have any connection to Portland, Maine, why do you want a gin from Portland, Maine that's right. comparable to the local gin in your neck of the woods? You want yeah. if you're gonna if you're gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna eschew the the big brands, I'm gonna eschew the the you know the Bombay's and the Tanqueray's and the beef eaters, et cetera, then you're gonna opt for something local to you, not local to some other place that mm-hmm. has no history and that frankly price wise is not competitive with uh, potentially even the local stuff in your neighborhood and certainly not competitive with the big brands. And, and there's just, there's such a hard, it's such a hard value proposition to people, you know, like Caitlin and I have purchased, you know, some local craft spirits in our travels over the years and we bring them home and there's kind of like a nice memento of the trip, but with the exception of maybe like one or two that we've really liked, we have never ever sought them out again because like they're just a cool memento and they're fun. And like, they have a sense of, of of you know of this place that they came from and they're mm-hmm. they're a good a, a memory of this trip but they're not like something that we would ever get excited about reordering uh, even if we legally could yeah I, mean, I think a good example of this is like you take a brand like king's county mm-hmm. right like the diageo had two two choices right it could buy king's county or it could just hire their distiller and it just hired their distiller and moved her down to Tennessee where she's now in charge of the entire Dickel program and gets to play with super, super old whiskeys and bring all the expertise that she had in creating, you know, some of Kings County because the Kings County stuff was fine, but like it, it's very specific to Brooklyn, you know, and mm-hmm. to a sp- even a specific area of Brooklyn. But like, you know, so, so I, I think a lot of what you're saying, Zach, is is just it's true i mean it takes a very long time for a lot of these brands to become really good now maybe maybe you know we will hear of in the next 10 or 15 years of probably it will be some some sort of brown spirit right but like a whiskey or something that is you know a local whiskey in a part of the country that now has enough stock that they're making they're releasing really old stuff that people are saying is really incredible mm-hmm. and that that might grow them but i do think it's also interesting as, as you were chatting i was thinking about this like some of the buzziest like craft brands or i guess you'd say independent brands right now mm-hmm. in this space that, that i think will get acquired people are really interested in are brands that are just finishing liquid they're like playing with other people's stock mm-hmm. like barrel bourbon right and pinhook mm-hmm. that's all mgp juice and like other i think barrels getting from other places too like there's you know uh, and, and you know 
that's really when you think about them, like that is how like whistle pig started. It was using well, other high people's West, liquid. For sure. Yeah. High West. I mean, they're all using other people's liquid, you know, because of what you're saying, like so much of what's distilled in these craft distilleries just isn't that amazing. And some, and the gins are kind like they're just, they're fine. Like they're not, there's nothing super, super special about them. And then when they're not tied to anyone else, they become the local product, which yeah. is cool. Like if you live in that city, I think it's awesome that you would support the local product. Well, and I think a fun thing that we are seeing, and, and this is not uh, brand new, but is, is somewhat new, especially in gin, but in, uh, in other things where we're maybe looking at inputs is an increased emphasis in these places on using local, uh, you know, botanicals yeah. and other yeah. things to, to flavor gins or, you know, local grains and things like that. If you're able to do that for your, uh, for whatever your spirits are, you know, et cetera. But again, that kind of naturally pigeonholes you into your geographic region. And maybe someone is really curious about what a gin from, you know, I don't know, the Mountain West tastes like or a gin from New England tastes like or a gin from, you know, the Southeast tastes like. And maybe they they go out and seek those things out. But like, that's just a that you're fighting for a small audience there. You totally are. Yeah, I think about um, Tamworth Distilling in New Hampshire, which is a place that we've covered before. And they they use like hyper local um, botanicals and things like that. And they they only sell them at the distillery. So you have to go. But I'm also wondering, like, do you think that this is the goal? Like, this is the goal for distilleries to to go national or global? No, I don't think so. I think some would like to. fine to be local? I think some would like to. I think others wouldn't. I think, because I'm sure that we're going to get some people who who message and say, like, you know, I own a distillery and I never wanted to be national. Yeah. And I I respect that. I think that it's just an interesting sort of study that that is what I think – the business is at this point. Yeah. And so like, if you are trying to launch a distillery, right, I think, especially if, if, if your aim is to launch a distillery in which you want to tie that distillery to the local community, mm-hmm. you will, you will be a local distillery, right? Like if it's, mm-hmm. if then it's all about like the super hyper local botanicals and things like that, you know, I think there, there's always going to be upstart alcohol brands that, that will pop. Right. There's mm-hmm. going to continue to be new brands that come into the market and that grow and then get bought. I'm just not sure those brands will come from the movement that we're seeing now, which is like, this is Portland's gin, or this is the gin made in, I don't know, Asheville, North Carolina, from, you know, all of the botanicals that we've picked in the mountain, in, you know, in the Smoky Mountains and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. I don't think those are the brands that will ever yeah. be anything more than representatives of the place in which they're made. Well, and I think the last piece of this is like kind of coming back to what you said about High West. If you are one of these brands that's looking to to launch somewhere in a, you know, slightly smaller community, or at least you're not, you're not aiming for national, but you want to get there right eventually, you need to have be at some, you need to have some kind of nexus to, to the broader, you know, beverage alcohol industry, right? And whether yeah. that means you're locating yourself somewhere that has um, its own, you know, kind of gravity or you're in a place where like some of the big, you know, festivals go or things like that. Like you need to be somewhere where people are going to get a chance to try what you have. And if enough people get excited about it, you know, in a way, these are like big behemoth companies, but on the other hand, they're still just, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, if you get in front of the right couple of people, you know, there's no law that said that 
the the whiskey distillery that had to catch on was High West. Like as you said mm-hmm. in the beginning, Adam, like they were well positioned and and you know well branded and made you know finished you know they did a good job finishing the liquid and blah blah blah. But like some of it is also just like they got in front of the right people at the right time, and maybe the mm-hmm. the right time has passed a little bit because there's so much more saturation. I'm not sure, but I think at the same time, like it is not inconceivable to me that in a few years we could be looking at another not like dominant brand but a brand that's meaningful that that has launched relatively recently that's in who knows where somewhere that people congregate from outside of that specific locale and they get excited about that drink or that spirit and bring it home yep i agree well let's drink something yes (laughs) all right half ounce my half ounce of treat every week (laughs) i know your 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 friday your friday damp day it's like, oh god. Damn January. I mean this, oh, I, these podcasts are all these podcasts are all labeled explicit anyhow, but this one is extra explicit. <laughs> um I have a question. In yeah. terms of like what we consider craft and local, like I'm thinking of Frey Ranch um out in Fallon, Nevada, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do we consider that? Like, is that like a local brand, a craft brand? Like they're huge. We love them. We've included them on I, think, I think they're different. I think they're really trying to be – they've got a lot of money behind them, mm. and they're trying very hard to be national. But mm. I would still say they're they're a craft local brand. Yeah. I mean, I still, it'd still be – you'd be hard-pressed to have anyone be able to know who they are. Yeah. Yeah. I'll cop to not knowing who they were. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so they're Great not brand. local Check to me. Out. Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys have? Go ahead, Joanna. Okay, well, I have something, a brand that's kind of sentimental because of the first time I had it, which is um, Taconic Distillery Bourbon, and I had it. Uh, no, you don't have our... that. Yes, I do. Why? That's what I have. Oh, yeah. that's so funny. <laughs> oh, um, the first time I ever had it uh, was my first trip with Evan ever. <laughs> we went to Hudson, and we had it in our bar there in Hudson, New York. So local bar, right? Uh, peddling their <laughs> local bourbon. Um, and we, you know, we've sought it out actually ever since because we liked it so much then. And and the my local liquor store actually happens to carry it. So every time I see a bottle and we're out, I, I grab it. Yeah. So I have the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I actually came in contact with Taconic in a little bit of a different way. Um, I have never been to the distillery, I but um, <laughs> I, I, uh, went to Stern and a bunch of, I was, I got to was very lucky to speak on a panel. It's sort of the beginning of the pandemic, like middle of the pandemic in like November, 2020. I don't even know what, what, where we were then um, about a year ago uh, about just like entrepreneurship and things like that with a few other entrepreneurs. And one of the women in the audience was Carol Ann Coughlin, who is also a Stern alum and she is one of the owners of Taconic. Mm-hmm. And so she reached out to me and sent me a bottle and I was like, wow, this is really good. This is really yeah. good bourbon. And um, so, yeah, so I think it's, it's really tasty. Uh, I, it's, it's, I think it's her and her husband who, mm-hmm. um, who owned the distillery and yeah, it's, it's really great. And then the reason I brought it was like, I would like to bring something that I think is a really good representation that I truly believe is a good representation of local distilleries mm-hmm. and not just something that I was going to say, yeah, I have it, but I don't, uh, don't like I don't it. really love it. Yeah. Yeah. Zach, what about you? So uh, I have a whiskey here from uh, Westland, which is a distillery here in Seattle that I think is actually Mm -hmm. another example of one of these. Joanna's familiar for sure. Mm -hmm. I know it too. Uh, That is 
that I would say is like they were acquired by uh, Remy Cointreau uh, a number of years ago. So they definitely started out super local and have gone somewhat national, international. But what I love about what they do is um, they are still like totally their whole brand identity is around the Pacific Northwest. And so um, they're doing a lot of interesting things. I actually interviewed Matt Hoffman, who's their master distiller uh, for the podcast uh, about a year ago now. Um, and so you can go back and listen to that. But he talks a lot, talks a lot about how important it is that they use um, local inputs wherever they can. So not just um, grain, although the barley is local, um, but um, you know, using local oak in some cases um, and really looking at doing a lot of really interesting things. I, I won't summarize too much, but I have their sherry wood cask finished. We're actually there in the process of phasing out because obviously there's no sherry bodegas here in uh, the Pacific Northwest, um, but uh, I still have some of it because I really like it, even if it's maybe not the most hyper local of mm-hmm. their products. Um, and they're all single malt. I mm-hmm. may or may not have mentioned that, but uh, so a little different than bourbon for sure, um, but a really uh, beautiful whiskey that I enjoy a lot and was glad to have this opportunity to try it or to retry it. They're really great. I mean, the liquid's great. I'm enjoying my nice little dram right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a, to to leave us, I do have a hypothesis. So I think the way that craft or local brands can pop. So I'm not talking about the, the, the brands we might be aware of that are, they are craft, but like they're doing what we already said, the barrels and things like that of the world, the 10 to one rums, these, you know, sort of using other people's stock. I think the places where they're distilling it themselves, they're connected to an actual distillery. They have to fully represent, not just like, like really like an I, an image of an entire place. So like the Pacific Northwest is a perfect example, or another, a gin I really like uh, from Greece is called Stray Dog. Oh, and yeah. Again, it's so it's named for the fact that you know Greece is full of lots of dogs everywhere, <laughs> lots of stray dogs. <laughs> but like it is the images of the brand are all about Greece. So it's like the Aegean, like the beauty of the water, the the color on the label is that blue, that Aegean blue, and then all of the botanicals in it are the really quintessential Greek herbs that we think of like masticha and dill and oregano and that is where i think okay like that can transport you to greece to a vacation to a place to a thing it's not connected just like this is an athens-based distillery it's just like it represents greece sure. and i think those are the kind of brands that still have a huge opportunity to pop because they the, everyone in in the united states can connect with what greece is Right, even if you've never been there before, like you've probably been to a Greek restaurant, like you understand what the allure of Greece is, why why everyone wants a honeymoon there, etc. I have been to the Pacific Northwest a few times, but it's been a while. But I can totally connect with that as a place and like sort of the dampness, like the, the outdoor. <laughs> no, but you know Just what I mean. Just in January, like, <laughs> yeah, like the outdoorsy vibe of the rainforest yeah. and like the the you know the sort of like I don't know, like the Patagonia idea. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that, the, you, the whiskey, the whiskey may or may not have notes of flannel. I'm not exactly I'm like, the flannel, but you can really connect to it, and I think that's what makes it such a like. That's the appeal. Yeah, that's the appeal. That's the mm-hmm. brand. When you think yeah. about like what a brand is, and and we talked about this a, a few episodes ago, like the a whole idea of brand strength, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why I think High West works. Is yeah. it's this idea of like you know it's on the edge. It's it's the Wild West. It's you know it's Utah. It's that's what people like. <laughs> okay, cool. Like that seems like a oh yeah, of course they they drank bourbon in the Wild West. 
you know, <laughs> and so you you connect with it, and then it's this this more enduring brand. Whereas if it's just like, you know, this is such and such, you know, brand made in such and such place using such and such botanicals, it's a local brand. Yeah, like you can't. I can't even remember the name of the Portland distillery. <laughs> I keep saying Portland gin. They're going to email me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I don't mean to use you as an example. It just it's what I'm thinking of. Um, well, Zach, enjoy your half dram. I, it's already <laughs> almost gone, sadly. Mm-hmm. Joanna, have a great weekend. Thank you. <laughs> Zach, you're, you're not drinking. It's dry January. So for you, I'll so just manage. I say have an okay weekend. And uh, <laughs> have a good weekend. Have a tolerable weekend. Uh, and I'll talk to you both on Monday. See you next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.